Welcome everybody to Off the Cuff. I am Adam Banks. Thank you for listening to the show. I want it to be Spanish friendly to all of our Spanish listeners out there that, you know, we like Spanish music. Listen. But, you know, Spanish music is just a really cool song. I mean, it's translated in English, a lot of it, but they sing a lot of it in Spanish, too, because really, you don't have to understand what the words are in order to still enjoy the song. You can still enjoy the beat. So, I just wanted to be Spanish-friendly to all of our Spanish-listening uh, people out there uh, that we are fans of of your music. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show I'm Adam Banks. Thank you for listening to another podcast episode of Off the Cuff. And guys, uh, just what's been going on in my life, I bought a vehicle, traded my truck in, my Nissan Frontier, and traded it in for an X3 BMW. So I went back to the BMW. I owned a BMW before the sedan, the 328XI. Um, I owned that for a couple years. Love the BMW, one of the best vehicles that I've ever had, and I, I got hit by an ambulance. Seriously, I got hit by an ambulance. I was going through a green light with a bunch of other cars. They all made it through, but I didn't because the ambulance had its lights on, but it didn't have its sirens on, so nobody heard it, and the ambulance was absolutely flying, and it hit me. I was okay, thank God, and that's all that matters, but my BMW was not. It was totaled. And I had to get rid of it. So when I got rid of the BMW, went to the Nissan Frontier. First time I ever owned a truck. Loved, loved that Nissan Frontier. It was a great truck. I give it um, five stars. The Nissan Frontier, I give it five stars. It's a wonderful truck. Never had any problems out of it. It ran good. Um, Really liked it. And uh, there's nothing like having a new vehicle. I mean, the only thing that I had to worry about with that truck was just uh, getting an oil change or, um, you know, filling it up with gas. So I I give the Nissan Frontier five stars. And uh, before, you know, my, my story with cars is just interesting. My first car was a 1998 Chevy Cavalier. And it was... Maybe not the most expensive car in the world, but it was definitely the cleanest car in the world. It was a car that cost about $2,800, and my mom bought it for me when I was 16. And I loved the car. You know, it was it was a two-door black uh, uh, Chevy Cavalier, black interior as well. Um, but yeah, I didn't I didn't mind driving it at all. And <clears throat> when my uh the the cavalier I drove it really literally till the wheels came off like I drove that thing until it couldn't drive no more but after that my mom bought me another car she bought me a G5 a G5 a Pontiac which is crazy they don't even make Pontiacs anymore but I had the G5 I have nothing but good things to say about it I didn't really like it personally but I but I respect the Pontiac G5 um not one of my favorite cars, but it, it, I had no problems with it. It ran great. It was a great car. It just wasn't my style. But as far as mechanically, it was a, it was a fine car. And I'm very appreciative of it from my mother for doing that for me. 
And after that came the BMW, and then after that came the truck, and now I have another BMW, the X3, decided to go with an SUV. It gets 28 miles to the gallon on the highway, which is good for me because I travel a lot on the highway. My Nissan Frontier got 23 to the gallon, so I'm saving myself some money on gas mileage, and um, I'm still getting to have the luxury of being in an SUV, and the reason I got an SUV, for those of you guys who are wondering who want to say that I'm you know, a soccer dad or whatever you want to call me. Um, I don't necessarily care because I wanted to drive the car for luxury just to be like comfortable. That's what I'm about is just being comfortable and having a luxury vehicle. And that's what a BMW is. And it's, it's a comfortable vehicle to have. And, uh, you know, the bells and whistles on it, it just takes some time to learn it all. But, you know, I, I like it so far. It's um, it's convenient. It's convenient to have. But, yeah, so we'll see what happens. You know, I, I, there's some things I'd like to probably do to it, but we'll see. So uh, one thing that I want to talk about here today on the podcast, it's a story that I find fascinating. It's about an attorney. His name is Eric C. Kahn. He is from uh, around my neck of the woods in eastern Kentucky. He was a Social Security disability attorney, and he pulled off one of the biggest Social Security scams in the entire country, and he stole around $600 million from the federal government. So he was indicted for um, basically um, having almost a 100% Social Security win rate. So he was in cahoots with the judge and the doctor, and uh, what would happen is people would come in uh, to uh, his doctor, say they were disabled. The doctor would uh, 100% always uh, say that they were disabled, and then when it went to the judge, the judge approved of the disability, and then Eric C. Kahn was the lawyer who represented him, and they all... You know, benefited from it. They all were in cahoots. They all, um, they all lined their pockets from stealing from the federal government. And a lot of people have lost their coverage since uh, Eric C. Khan has been indicted. A lot of the people who who he hooked up with the Social Security check, um, a lot of innocent people, as well as a lot of people who probably didn't deserve it. And so Eric C. Khan got indicted. And they were going to have a trial for him and everything, and then all of a sudden, uh, while he's on house arrest, because he gets uh, put on house arrest after a one-point-some-million-dollar bond, and while he's on house arrest, he escapes, and he disappears, and nobody knows where he's at. A lot of people are saying he fled the country and went to places like Cuba um, possibly Ecuador, um, you know, just places everybody's thought is that he's went to a country that will not expedite you, and you can't say that you blame him. Listen, he left, if he pulled that off, he is one of the biggest con artists that Eastern Kentucky has ever seen. I mean, he basically stole almost a billion dollars from the government. And now, living it up probably in another country. Now, with that being said, I'm not saying he is in another country. He could quite possibly just be two houses down from where he's at. 
and or where he lived at. You know, a lot of people think that if they are if they need to run away, they need to go somewhere far, far away. That's not necessarily true. As a matter of fact, if you just go two or three houses down from where you originally were, nobody's going to be think to be looking at you over there. People aren't going to think that you're actually in your own backyard. If people, if everybody in the world thinks you're in another country, that's just going to put the mindset in everybody's head that you are in another country or at least in another state or thousands of miles away. The possibility of you being just two miles down the road from your house is not even fathomable to some people. So who knows what's going to happen there with Eric C. Cullen. I, I think that if he pulled that off, if he actually pulled that off and left the country, wow. He actually stuck it to the FBI. Eric C. Cullen is Eric C. Gone. Because Eric Cullen, guys, you have to understand something about this guy. He is from, like I said, my part of the state, eastern Kentucky. He had a practice in Sayersville. And uh, he had, I believe it was Sayersville, maybe it was Prestonsburg, McGoffin County. It was somewhere in that area. But he had billboards everywhere of himself. He was, he had more billboards than Saul Goodman did from Breaking Bad. He was, uh, he had mannequins of himself sitting on billboards, sitting uh, or standing there on the side of the street. Uh, he was all over the town. His face was everywhere, on the back of phone books, on business cards, on park benches, on on just billboards in general. He was everywhere. This guy was the most recognizable lawyer in the state of Kentucky, without question. And now he's one of the biggest crooks. There was always something real shady about him. 60 Minutes did a whole uh, special on the story. Goes into a lot more detail of what happened. But there were some whistleblowers in his office that told on him. And the judge who was in cahoots with him uh, attempted suicide. He tried to kill himself while he sat in his car and let it run. I mean, think about it. Suicide is one of those things that you, you don't know why people or what people are going through in order to commit suicide. You some. How you know, in some ways, you get a thought of why this judge was thinking that he needed to commit suicide because he is about to go to prison and he didn't want to be a judge in prison. There's really two things you don't want to be in prison one is a cop, and the other is a judge. And in some cases, and probably most cases, a lawyer. If you are a prosecuting attorney that locked up a lot of people, you don't want to go to jail with these people. I wonder what it would be like, though, if he did make it to another country, how he would feel about never coming back to the United States. In my mind, I think that this is the greatest country in the world, and there's no other place in the world like this, and I wouldn't want to live in another country. So I wonder what he thinks about it but you know he probably is, is he knows his fate he knows that if he came back to the United States it would never be the same and it's an unrealistic thought to think he could ever live a normal life in the US again especially now so i guess with the 
uh, having no option to come back to the United States, I think it's probably really easy for him to leave the United States and start over in another country. I'm sure he will do a complete start over if he did make it to another country. He'll probably do a name change. Uh, he, uh, you know, changes look. Looking here online at some of the stuff, some of the press releases, uh, there's an update that was on June the 12th, two days ago. It says that uh, the Lexington, or I'm sorry, the uh, doctor that was in cahoots with Eric Kahn, who helped these clients get Social Security uh, by frauding the government, uh, was found guilty. He was uh, charged uh, in the multi-million dollar disability scheme. Uh, After a federal trial, he was found guilty. He was found uh, guilty of multiple accounts of conspiracy to commit mail fraud, conspiracy to commit wire fraud, and making false statement uh, representation. The sentencing was scheduled for September 22nd, so you got to wait a little longer to find out where he's going to go. Absolutely nuts. Crazy story. Crazy story. Crazy story. What I'm going to do is play a clip of the... Uh, Eric Seacon press conference that was done by FBI special agent. Uh, I can say that first off, we are looking for Eric Christopher Kahn. We need him to face justice for defrauding the U.S. taxpayer of more than $550 million in a Social Security fraud scheme. So anyone who has ever paid taxes, who has paid into the Social Security program, should take that pretty personally, that he has now fled justice after having pled guilty on March 24th for his role in that scheme. So one count of theft of government money and another count of payment. Anyone who works knows how, you know, nobody wants to work just for the fun of it. I mean, come on. 90% of Americans don't work for the fun of it. Some of us have great jobs where we do, but we all work for the paycheck. And we all pay into into Social Security, and Eric Seacon frauded us. He's a scumbag. In Lexington. Sentence next month. But instead, on Friday evening, he removed his GPS monitoring device, or his ankle bracelet, which was found along I-75 in Lexington. The next day, a warrant was issued for his arrest, for his arrest, and we began ardently looking for him, as we are today. We issued a press release initially. Absolutely. And crazy. today I'm announcing a $20,000 reward for his location. $20,000. That leads to his I mean, arrest. That right there so is that an incentive. He can return to Kentucky and face justice. I think that's raised now to 50 maybe. I don't interrupt your statement, Ms. Hill. Sure. As you go through, we're looking for a little detail. So because I'm getting on. You know where. Let's skip through here and see. They're not. Sure, how long that will be, and so we want to try to actively look for him as quickly as possible. Then we may see a continuance of that sentencing. Who knows? I mean, it's very interesting. You can go on to um, EKB TV and see the FBI full press conference of Eric Christopher Kahn. 
uh, crazy story. So switching gears, I just want to uh, talk a little bit more about what a lot of things happening in my life, in my personal life. I just got back from Memphis, Tennessee, my very first time in Memphis. Uh, very cool city. I didn't really get to experience it the way I wanted to experience it because I was just so busy. But what I was doing there, I was applying, I had applied for a teaching job. And it was a full-time instructor position at a college called Southwest Tennessee Community College. And I got a call back for an interview. And I've been interviewing for that position. And I made it to the final interview, which required me to go to Memphis and actually meet the committee in person, do a teaching demonstration for them. So it was about a 15-minute teaching demonstration. If you're wondering what teaching demo I did, I did my topic over the fear of public speaking, which you can listen to uh, here on Off the Cuff on the Communication Lecture Series if you want to get a chance to do that. But went to Memphis. It's a six-hour drive from my apartment in Lexington uh, to Memphis. And it took, in my truck, it took about a tank and a half to get there and a tank and a half to get back. So it's a three-tank drive. Uh, which comes to about a total of 120 bucks. So it's a six-hour trip one way, six-hour trip back, so it's a 12-hour trip. Uh, not bad. I've never been somebody to complain much over driving. I think anything under eight hours is very doable. I think sometimes people put too much emphasis on the hours of the drive. I, I don't understand that. Just get in your car and go. You'll be there eventually. Six and for for six hours, think about what you might do at home. I did everything that I did in my car that I would have been doing at my house. Uh, talked on the phone. I talked on the phone. I, it gave me an opportunity to talk to people that I hadn't talked to in a while. It gave me an opportunity to have lengthy conversations with them because what else am I going to do? It's just me in the road. So that kind of forced me to have good conversation on the telephone with my uh, friends. So I kept myself busy, really didn't listen to much radio. I'd listened to some podcasts, uh, you know, uh, caught up on uh, my favorite podcasts and uh, talked on the phone and really never listened to much music. So that I still had that in my back pocket if I got bored. Uh, but the six-hour drive, it wasn't bad. Got to Memphis. As soon as I pulled up to my hotel... I was walking in, and I promise you, as soon as I walked in and I gave the guy at the front desk my credit card and my license to check in, while I was doing that, this woman comes up to the door, and she's like, hey, you. And I was like, who is this lady? What is she wanting? Is she wanting money? Because usually if somebody just approaches you and don't know you and and somebody like that, I've I've seen that song and dance before. It's usually... Some beggar who has no shame, who is about to bum five, ten bucks from you. So I was like, man, I'm not in the mood. I just got off of the road. I've been on the road for six hours. I was overwhelmed. I was stressed because, you know, this job in Memphis, it was it was weighing on me. I, I was very overwhelmed because I'd never been to Memphis before. I'd been on the road. I was by myself. I didn't know nobody there. I was thinking about the things that I had to do if I took this job. I was just thinking about so much, and I was stressed, and I was not in the mood to deal with a beggar. And I was just very standoffish. And plus, you know, people are dangerous. You never know what they're up to these days. And I've heard that 
The crime in Memphis is pretty bad. Actually, one of the biggest cities for crime in the United States. And I was like, what do you want? And she says, well, can you come here for a minute? I was like, no, I don't know you, so I'm not going to come there. And she's like, well, I don't know you either. I was like, well, okay then. But she was very persistent, wanting me to come over there. I was So I've, I was like, why don't you just come here? And she's like, I don't want the guy at the front desk to hear me. I thought that was strange. But I was very reluctant coming closer to her because she was standing outside because in the cities where hotels are, uh, most hotels, they have you check in from the outside. They have you check in to your hotel from the outside past hours because I guess the crime rate is so high they don't want nobody to, to just go into the hotel. So they have you check in from outside uh, and I'm standing in like this little room, this little box that this hotel has uh, designated for uh, late night guests to check in. And I kind of stood there in the doorway. I was like, yeah, what do you want? And she said, I'm just wanting to let you know that I've had a little to drink. And I saw you walking uh, into the hotel from your truck and I think you're very sexy and I want to party with you. I was like, what? I thought this woman was just crazy. I was like, first off, I wasn't even flattered because, you know, who says that? Who does that to people? A woman who does that is obviously somebody that you don't want to be messing with. If she's ready to come on to you like that, like that's pretty strong. So I was like, uh, well, I appreciate it. And uh, I was like, but... You know, I'm tired. I'm a college professor. I have a an important meeting in the morning, and I don't really want to party. And she's like, well, I'm not wanting any money money from you. I just want you to know that. And then she looked me up and down with her eyes and gave me that look. And I kind of giggled, and I said, ah, yeah, I didn't figure you wanted money. She wanted to take me back to her hotel room, and this confirms it. She says, well, if you change your mind, I'm in room 215. I was like, wow. I was like, okay, thanks. But I got back to my hotel room, and I started to really think about what this, what just happened. Because it hadn't really registered. You know, when things happen, you don't really let things like that register uh, right at first. I started thinking about it. This woman really could have been somebody who was about to set me up. She could have been in cahoots with some man, and they were trying to get me to their hotel room to knock me in the head and rob me and which which they would have succeeded because I was unarmed I had no weapon I had no gun no knife which was a mistake I will not go back to Memphis without some type of protection as a matter of fact I will not go to any major city without some type of protection if I'm staying tonight because come on if you have no protection you have nothing on you you're not armed you are asking for uh, something bad to happen if if you're attacked. You ha- and I was sitting there in my hotel. I felt so vulnerable because there was no exit but the front door. And if they are trying to get in the front door, how am I going to get out anyplace else? Uh, if anybody was trying to break in on me, I had no weapon, no knife, no gun, nothing. And I will never make that mistake again. But I started thinking about what she was saying. And thinking about the setup that she could have uh, had on me. And it made sense that that's probably what she was trying to do. Uh, 
because one, she didn't want the guy at the front desk to hear, to see or hear her. Um, I had my phone out, which I always hold my phone up and it always looks like I'm recording, which I'm not. People always think I'm recording them, but I'm not. And she kept looking at my phone and trying to back up away from my phone. And I kept seeing her trying to back away from my phone. She probably thought I was trying to take pictures of her. She didn't want to be on camera. Uh, and then she was trying to get me to her hotel room. If she really wanted to sleep with me, why couldn't she have just invited herself up into my room? And that is scary to think. And I, when I started to think about it, the more terrified it actually got me. I was like, wow, I came really close to getting attacked, really close to getting mugged. And I hadn't been in Memphis five minutes when this happened. So, you know, it is what it is. Uh, <laughs> that was That's kind of how the trip started. But got to Memphis, went to the college the next morning, uh, did my interview, uh, did a presentation, the teaching demo, talked to the committee for about 45 minutes after the presentation was over, and I feel really good about it. Now, I don't know how I do it, those things. I never know how I do it in interviews. I always think that I do fine, and then I'll get a call back saying that I didn't get it. But I feel like it went okay. I feel like that I did fine. It's just I'm nervous because it's a big change. If I get this job in Memphis, you guys are probably wondering, what's next? What am I doing? Well, here's what will happen. If I get this job in Memphis, I plan on having a double occupancy life in two cities. I plan on having two residents, one in Lexington and one in Memphis. Uh, you may ask, why stay in Lexington? Well, I plan on keeping my apartment in Lexington because my company, Next Friday Incorporated, is headquartered at this apartment. So it would just be a lot of trouble to go through the hoops of trying to get my company uh, reincorporated. Also, I want a place to come home to in the summer. This is my home, and Kentucky is my home, and I need a good old Kentucky home. My family is in Kentucky, my siblings, my parents. I need to be in Kentucky. Well, my dad is. My mom's in Virginia, but I, I always have to have a place to come back to if I want it in Kentucky because I love this place, and the position is only nine months per year, so I'm off in the summer. I'm off a month in the winter. I don't want to stay in Memphis during those times, so I want to come back to Kentucky. So that's what I plan on doing. A lot of people think that you're crazy for paying that apartment, paying two rents. First, it's none of your business. It's my money. I'm going to do what I want to with it. And two, you don't understand the situation with you know, the business and everything. But that's what I want to do. Uh, so I will be... Going to Memphis, uh, the position starts in August, so I would like to sign a lease sometime in August, uh, around the 1st of August, uh, for a little small one-bedroom, maybe even a studio apartment in Memphis, uh, so I'll have a place to lay my head at night and to do my work. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for listening to the show. It's been another great episode here on Off the Cuff. I'll see you in the next episode. I'm Adam Banks. This has been Off the Cuff. Come over and start up a conversation with just me and trust me, I'll give it a chance. Now take my hand, stop, put the man on the jukebox and then we start to dance and
Yeah.